You are listening to MCC Geopod, the geopolitical podcast of the Maciej Corvinas Collegium, the largest talent management institute in Hungary. If you want to know more about our mission, please look up our English website at mcc.hu/en or check out our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter channels. For interesting articles and analysis of our professors and students, look up our knowledge base at korvinac.hu/en. Welcome everybody. You're listening to Geopod podcast. I am your host Zolta Shitkei and uh, it is my pleasure to tell you and uh, welcome uh, Dr. Gadi Taub at the studio who is a faculty member at the Federman School of uh, Public Policy and the government at the Hebrew University at uh, Jerusalem and also a guest lecturer at MCC Dr. Taub. Uh, welcome and thank you for the uh, Hello, thank you for having me. Nice to meet you. Uh today's topic uh will be Israel and uh, its geopolitics and uh, its uh, position at the region because uh, if you take a look at the map uh, we can see that Israel is surrounded by uh, uh somewhat hostile Arab nations and uh, what what's your take on on uh, its position in the region well originally its position seemed impossible when uh, the first uh, Zionist Jews began to return to the land of Israel at the end of the 19th century it looked like a like a complete dream uh, but Zionism achieved something that no other nation achieved before is to collect a dispersed people back to its ancient homeland and then uh, and then found a country and within seven years triple its population and stabilize it and make it a prosperous place in the midst of a hostile region after a bloody war of independence israel now has western european gdp per capita despite its enormous investments in security and is a, a high tech superpower and um, and so we can look back with satisfaction and um it seems that uh, it's working because in uh, september of uh, 2020 the Abraham Accords was uh, reached and uh, some of the Arab states uh, recognized Israel as a state which seemed impossible before um could this be a big uh, uh, turnover for for Israel a, a historic moment or um, is it only political um I, i wish that was the last turning point but uh, but the the Abraham Accords were were an achievement of the policy which uh, uh, Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu jointly advanced. And when I interviewed uh, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on my podcast and asked him what what the policy of the United States was under the Donald Trump administration, he said it had three pillars. One, Iran is not the solution, as Obama believed, it's the problem. Two, we need to bypass the Palestinian veto on relations between Israel and Arab countries and three a hold a credible military threat in the region and uh, and this policy um, enabled uh, the middle east to to open a new era and and this and this new era was predicated on the understanding of arab countries that the palestinians do not want peace that supporting the maximal demands of the Palestinians has brought nothing and that the 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 boycott on Israel does no longer serve 
the purpose and the interest of the uh, Sunni Arab countries, especially the Gulf countries, but also, of course, um, Egypt, with which we have had a cold peace since 1979. So um, the, the main the main um, shift has to do with the collapse, a civilizational collapse of the Arab world, the likes of which we haven't seen um, in recorded history. It's um, after after almost a century, um, or, or or even a little more. Um, we've been through different principles of political order in the Arab world, and none of them survived, from uh, monarchies to Arab socialism to pan-Arabism to political Islam to nationalism. Nothing managed to hold. And in 2011, what was called the Arab Spring and turned out to be the Islamic winter, um, what we saw is the collapse of nation states. And we, we, uh, we had a clear demonstration that, that Bernard Lewis, the great uh, Arabist, the great Orientalist and historian, uh, said that there are only four nation states in the Middle East, Egypt, Israel, Turkey, and Iran. All the rest, he said, are tribes with flags. And that's what we saw in the Arab Spring, that, that nation states were artificial uh, creatures in the Arab world and they collapsed. So the whole region is, um, is political lava. There is nothing stable and no principle of order except tribalism. And so into that void, the um, Iranians um, came in and tried to establish themselves as a hegemonic power in the region. And they're very successful. It's not an Arab country. It's a Farsi country. It has a very long um, cultural tradition and also a very long diplomatic tradition of cheating everybody. And, and, and it has a, a greater sense of pride and confidence. And what it did is destroy Arab states from within using its proxies, like it did in Lebanon with Hezbollah, in Yemen with the Houthis, in Iraq with their militias, in Syria, everywhere they can in order to empty the, the, the state shells in the Arab world and take over those societies. So the, the, the smarter players in the region, uh, the Saudis, uh, the, the United Arab Emirates, the Egyptians, realized that if, if they keep backing the Palestinian veto and boycotting Israel, they have no alliances to hold against Iran. And the, and, and, and the, the one power that can counterbalance Iran in the region is Israel, which is a military regional superpower. Now, backed by the United States, this becomes a force to reckon with. Um, and I think that one of the turning points for, for the Arab countries was a move by Benjamin Netanyahu, which seemed at the time, or to me too, seemed like a crazy gamble. When Obama was negotiating the Iran peace deal, Benjamin Netanyahu went behind the president's back and in defiance of the president's will to speak to two houses of Congress in a joint session, a very successful uh, speech. He got a standing ovation, but Israelis were shocked and, and, and scared. Are you going to, are you going to 
get us into direct conflict with an American president. But what it demonstrated to the region is that if America can't be trusted, because when you have a democratic uh, administration, then it will, it will try to appease rather than oppose Iran, what they realize is that you can trust Israel. Israel will, will act even on its own, even in defiance of America. So I think that, that laid the groundwork for the future coalition because Arab countries saw that they can trust Israel. And uh, it's uh, good that you mentioned the, the Palestinian cause because uh, some of the leaders of the, the Palestinian uh, parties and leadership called uh, the Abraham Accords a uh, kind of a backstab to, to the Palestinian cause. And uh, we can see that uh, Saudi Arabia or the Gulf countries are uh, not so vocal about uh, the, the Palestinian cause. Uh, so could this be the solution for, um, for um, Israel-Palestinian conflict? I suggest we stop talking about the solution because there seems to be no solution for the uh, near future. And what the Palestinians are doing is they 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 have managed to um, to put obstacles in front of every plan and solution that was proposed. So they have learned that every time that they refuse an Israeli offer, they get a better offer. So why should they agree? And and Trump was. The, since he comes from business, he, the first thing, his first instinct was, this is not how you conduct negotiations. You should put a deal on the table and tell the Palestinians, if you don't take this, next you'll get a worse deal, not a better deal. And this was the plan. And, and the plan worked and they said no. And uh, everybody said, well, that's, that's your problem then. And let's continue with other things. So this was, this was uh, Netanyahu's plan to, to uh, leave behind the obsession with the idea that everything in the region somehow has to do with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And we're all like, we're all freezing, like a freeze frame until everybody, uh, until the, the Palestinians get off their pedestal and agree to something. Well, if they don't agree, life uh, moves on. Secondly, we've learned that the Palestinian national movement, we for years imagined that the Palestinian National Liberation Movement was something like Zionism, that it was national and that it aimed, that its main aim was political independence. And this is just not true. The main aim of Palestinian, of the Palestinian National Movement is geographic and not political. It is about returning the so-called refugees into Israel proper, uh, regions where they, they left, at times uh, evacuated, ran away, and sometimes were expelled by the uh, Israeli army in the, in the War of Independence. But these are no longer refugees. These are the descendants of the 1948 refugees. And, and they seem to think they have what they call a right of return. Uh, you are European. You know that, uh, that populations were moved here by wars, especially after they, they lost wars. And no one here demands the return of descendants of refugees to where they left. There is no such right. Um, they started a war against us, a war of genocide. They lost the war. And we don't uh, need to offer them our sovereignty as a compensation for their folly. So if you look at what, what, what is 
in their minds, um, the obstacle to peace is the existence of Israel. They want to return the Palestinian diaspora. The, 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 the actual refugees of the 48 war were about 700,000. Now there are about 5 million descendants to these refugees living in countries around us. If, if, if all these people were to return, as they call it, to Israel proper, this would mean that Jews would not be a majority in their own country. For, for a long time, I said, you know, we have a law of return, like Hungary. Hungary does too. So ethnic Jews or culturally, uh, it, it's complicated because we have a, like you, I think, a grandfather clause. So if you have one grandparent that is Jewish, you can get automatic citizenship in Israel. So for a long time, I thought, okay, they can have a law of return to their part of the land, which was the original plan of partition in 1947. So the diaspora can come back home to a Palestinian state and get citizenship there. But that's not what they want. And I no longer support this because our experience showed that, that um, after leaving Gaza in August of 2005, we saw that what, what we got in return was not nation-building, Palestinian nation-building, but the turning of Gaza into a Hamastan, a base for terror attacks on Israel and rockets. So um, you, you know, I don't know how many of our listeners do, but you know the map. So if you know the map of Israel, you know that, that the, the Palestinian territories in Judea and Samaria, where the Palestinian state was supposed to be, or the main bulk of it, are on a mountain range overlooking the coast of Israel and the width of Israel between the coast, where I live, by the way, between the, the beach and the foothills of Samaria is at the narrowest point, 14 kilometers. So in, we can't have a mountain range overlooking this short strip where the bulk of our population is concentrated being under the range of even the simplest rocket. So we just can't have that. So there, there's no point in talking on, about a solution until the Palestinians change their national goal from killing us to their own independence. I mean, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a serious uh, security issue. And uh, someone who I believe has uh, kind of the same ideas is uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who is uh, back in office uh, after uh, the election. And after the failure of uh, the Lapid and the Bennett government. I don't so, know if you saw that, but there, uh, uh, Victor Orban on Twitter uh, uh, posted a picture himself with uh, Netanyahu's new autobiography. He's all smiles. So <laughs> I reckon Mr. Orban yes, is um, also happy that, that Bibi is back in charge. I mean, uh, lately the, the Hungarian uh, and Israeli government is uh, getting quite close, uh, also in the purchase of uh, military uh, technology. Um, um, what uh, what are uh, the other connections in uh, in Hungary and, and uh, Israel? Are uh, there are other bilateral uh, relationships? Or, uh, what do you think? Well, first of all, we have we have a very good friend in Hungary because in the strange structure of the uh, neo Habsburg Empire called the European Union, there is a veto, and the Hungarian veto is one of one of our most important assets in, in many crucial issues. Secondly, I think that both Israel 
and Hungary are at the forefront of defending the rights of nation states to preserve their national character. We live in a world where the progressives believe that we should transcend nationalism. Um, my most recent book is an attempt to say that when you transcend nationalism, you also transcend democracy. And that, that we should be aware of the fact that those people who are promoting the transcendence of nationalism are actually anti-democratic and create anti-democratic institutions. So the obvious example is, of course, the European Union, which is basically a structure that allows an alliance of elites against national populations and against nationalism. And of course, um, every time that we defend nationalism, we are answered by these people that this is fascism. But this is not fascism. This is the right of self-determination. And, um, and, and that right is a function of democracy. And um, peoples should not give up their sovereignty, their right to determine their own fate, because the left uh, gets hysterical about it. And um, in this topic, I, 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 uh, I think I heard uh, you saying uh, that in Israel, uh, the right and the left wing uh, kind of disappeared and uh, became who is nationalist and uh, who is not. Uh, is that right? Or, uh, yeah, I think, I think they've not completely disappeared. Although it is not clear what the left stands for in traditional terms because it's no longer exactly socialist. Um, part of it is actually individualist and, and, and liberal. Um, and it can no longer offer a peace process, although it portrays itself as more dovish, while the left is more hawkish and uh, aware of security issues. But what but you're right to say, and this is um, the, the, these are the deeper the deeper changes that are not immediately obvious to those who are not uh, well versed in what's happening in the region or in, or in Israel proper, is that the progressive left has become internationalist. So we there's no not going to be a European Union in the Middle East. We're, nobody in Israel is suggesting that we create a common structure with the Arab uh, countries around us. But what these people are striving for is a non-Jewish, non-national state. And as I said, the attacks on nationalism are actually an attack on democracy. And you can see this very clearly if you ask how can Israel be turned into a non-Jewish state. And just let me remind you that 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 Israel is Jewish in its national character, not in its religion. We don't have a state religion. We don't have a state church. So in order to make Israel not Jewish, say, change our day of rest from the Sabbath to the Christian uh, Sunday or to the Muslim Friday, um, in order to do that, you need to... You need to um, impose it from above because as long as you have a majority and a general right to vote, the majority will vote for Hebrew to be our first uh, uh, official language, the Sabbath to be our day of rest, Jewish holidays to be our calendar of school holidays and Jewish symbols to be um, the inspiration for uh, the formation of our public sphere. So the only way to make Israel 
non-Jewish in its national char character is to impose it from above. So would you say that um, the, the globalist elite or, or the progressive left is a, a bigger threat to Israel than Arab states? Well, I don't think, I, I, I think that the, the, the frightening thing is the alliance because, because if you look at this internationalist and progressive left and its general outlook, its general uh, reverence of victimhood, its, its moral map of the world, its political map of the world, it, this, is, this is Edward Said and Barack Obama, who's Said's most talented and influential student. So these people are, um, are going to buy, buy, bow down before Iran and let the Iranians, Iranians have a military nuclear program and they're going to step on the heads of their allies, which are Saudi Arabia, Jordan, uh, Egypt, and, and Israel. And this is the same internationalist elite that is obsessed with climate change, that is hostile to all national leaders, uh, that portrays your prime minister as a fascist, our prime minister as a fascist in the making, and, and uh, supports multiculturalism, which means that only minorities have a right to their cultural identity, while if the majority demands its own right to defend its own identity, well, that's fascism. So somehow the minorities have rights that majorities don't have. Um, and somehow the most uh, brutal racist cultures are now uh, embraced. So, so progressivism is basically an autoimmunic disease in which the, the, the West is committing suicide. And, and yeah, in Israel, you have a very uh, strong reality check on such ideas because we are in a serious, it's not a theoretical thing that somewhere in the future, Europe will have, I don't know, a Muslim majority. It's, we, we live in a region where, where buses are exploding, wars are ignited um, regularly and and fighting for our identity doesn't mean fighting only in the realm of ideas. We actually need guns. And uh, well, I can well, I can imagine the um, the hardship of uh, being allied of uh, of the United States because uh, with uh, Trump, the the Israeli U.S. Uh, ties was very strong, but now we have Biden in office, who is uh, very um, opposed to the politics of of Trump and be part of the the progressive left uh, that you that you exactly mentioned. exactly biden is th this is the third obama administration basically obama's people are running the show biden uh, as i heard one uh, one uh, political advisor uh, to a senior american politician told me in a, uh, a background briefing he said uh, practically speaking there's no such thing as joe biden And so the, the Obama people are, are running the show. And look how progressivism is. Supposedly, they are the anti-racist party, right? They're, they're the, the protectors of minorities and gays and whatnot. But there is now a women's uprising in Iran against the hijab, the head cover. And the Iranian mullahs are brutally suppressing and killing the protesters. And Biden is turning his head and looking the other way, uh, all in the name of progress. So these people are, are, are terrible. They're terrible morally, they're terrible politically, they're terrible for, the, for peace in the region. 
let me remind you that that when the Iranians when the Iranians uh, were uh, promoting their violence through their proxies, Trump just took down Qasem Soleimani, the head of the uh, the, the uh, um, Revolutionary Guard in Iran. So the the way to treat these bullies are to are, are with a show of force, not with attempting to to flatter them. And what and, and what Biden is now trying to do, and we can see it all over, because he imposed on Israel a new a new sea border with Lebanon, which now gives Hezbollah access to natural gas in the sea, where it didn't have it before, because this territory was supposed to be Israel's. But he showed that he can. He was the Lapid government. I don't think he could have done it to Netanyahu. But he, he managed to show how he can force Lapid's hand. Now, look at the region in general, and you'll see he did the same thing to the Saudis. He, he, he took the Houthis out of the list of terror organizations. So if we look at the map, what do we see? Biden is demonstrating to Iran that he can step on the heads of his own allies and force them to capitulate b- before Hezbollah and the Houthis, which are both Iran proxies. So now in the midst of, of the revolution, Biden cannot move forward with, the, uh, with renewing the terrible nuclear deal. But he can, he can signal to the Iranians that he's ready to make more concessions to them. And this is what he's doing. And uh, for my last question, um, just in general, after this uh, discussion, what uh, would you say? What, uh, what comes for, for uh, Israel in the say, next 10 years uh, was the prospect of, of Israel? It's hard to say in the Middle East what will happen tomorrow. So 10 years is a, is a long time. But hopefully we will find a way to stop the Iranian nuclear deal. Because if you have a nuclear, nuclear I'm sorry, nuclear, military nuclear program, because if you have an Iran that is armed with nuclear weapons, then all its proxies will become much more bold. So Israel is, on the, uh, the, our northern border is Lebanon. Hezbollah points up about 150,000 rockets at Israel. It would become much more bold if there would be a, a nuclear umbrella covering it, and Iran will be much more bold. Secondly, since we are not the only ones afraid of Iran, then there will probably begin a nuclear arm race in the region. And there's a lot of money. A lot of these countries are very rich. And I don't trust Vladimir Putin to withstand the temptation to sell nuclear weapons when he will need the money. So the prospects of a nuclear arm race in this region full of crazy fanatics and people willing to commit suicide is a very, very frightening prospect for the future. Well, uh, I'm afraid uh, we are up for time, but uh, Dr. Tau, thank you so much for your time and uh, this uh, discussion. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this MCC Geopod episode. For further media content, please look up our English website at mcc.hu en or look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you want to read more by our professors and students, check out our knowledge base at corvinec.hu en.